have your Bibles, we'll be in Genesis chapter 1. And uh, I do count it a privilege to be here. Thank you to Pastor for the invitation to speak this evening. And uh, it has been a privilege to be a missionary in Papua New Guinea. I don't have to talk to you much about it because you guys know a lot of folks in Papua New Guinea. Uh, Dave leaned over me when I said 16 years. He pointed out the fact that my wife and I got married when we were 12, and uh, we went immediately to Papua New Guinea and have not aged since. So uh, it's been a privilege to be there, and uh, God's doing a mighty work there. Port Moresby is uh, just the the work is blossoming, and it's been amazing to watch as God's done his part. Uh, I want to say thank you to you folks for giving us the Perrys, and uh, they are quite a blessing in our church. I'd like to uh, spend some time together in the first three chapters of Genesis. I will not read every verse, but we'll just highlight and touch some. And my goal for tonight is for us to look at some of the roots of our redemption. None of this would be new for us, and yet I think hopefully it will give us a chance to see the Savior anew and uh, just refresh our memory of how great our God is. And so I'd like to... Just give, uh, before we read in Genesis 1, I'd like to give you two principles that I approach the Old Testament with. And I think that you would probably be familiar with both of these principles. Some Bible study tips, if you were to call it that. First off, we get our salvation doctrine from the New Testament. And all of us know that. And yet, many times from the Old Testament, sometimes we kind of go, well, there's the New Testament for salvation. And kind of the Old Testament's just a bunch of stories. And we look at maybe David was a hero and those sort of things. Uh, and so if I can remind you, yes, we get, our, we get our doctrine for salvation in the New Testament, and yet the Old Testament builds up and shows us the character of God, and that actually is the second thing that we get to see about, or the second tip that I, I have for when I study the Old Testament, is I get to see God progressively reveal His character as we come through the Old Testament. We'll actually see some of those this evening, some of His characteristics in these opening chapters and uh, please don't let anybody tell you the God of the Old Testament is a different God from the God of the New Testament. As much as he hated sin in the Old Testament, he hates sin still. The difference being the anger that he poured out upon man in the Old Testament has been poured out on Christ at the cross. And so when we come into the New Testament, we can look back to Christ. And those who do not put their trust in Christ... Sin still bears down upon them. And Romans chapter 1 tells us that their sin is heaping up. His wrath is heaping up against their sin. And the day will come when He will pour out that wrath with a fury that is unmatched. If I can draw us to Genesis 1. Let's approach the text. I'd like to take just a minute and develop some of the character that we see about God. Let's see it. Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. What a magnificent way to open the book. He created and he did that out of nothing. And I think of as I look at the different ways that we and it's God's image bearers create, you realize that in order for us to create, we have to have something to create from. And he creates from nothing and there's a whole lot of nothing out there and he can just keep on doing that. 
And with the power of his word, he said, let there be light and light scattered across the eternal darkness. And I imagine that must have been magnificent. In fact, as you look down into verse number four, God saw the light and it was good. So we see two things immediately about his character. One, he is all powerful in that he can create with his word. By the way, good good luck trying that yourself. Uh, His word he speaks all-powerful, but then on top of that, He creates all things good. And so we see His character. All things that He does are good. And then that gets repeated throughout this chapter. Look at verse 12. The earth brought forth grass. You would say grass. That's your language. But grass and herb yielding seed after His kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after His kind. He created all of those things mature The question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? The truth is the chicken came first, but the egg was right there. Uh, The fruit bearing fruit, the trees bearing fruit with the seed inside, mature. And then God saw that it was good. And then verse 18, speaking of the sun and the moon to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from darkness, and God saw that it was good. We see this being repeated throughout the chapter. And then you look at verse 21. God created great Whales. I've just got to ask, how many of you have been out on your ship here and seen the whales? How many, I, I want to see. How many people have gone and seen the whales? If you've not done that, they'll give you your money back if you don't see it. Okay? Uh, that Magnificent. This is a place that my family would come for holiday for all of my children's life. We've come to Brisbane and Gold Coast and get on the ship and go out and see the whales. Just phenomenal. Giant peaceful whales. I don't think I would be at all exaggerating if I would say they were longer than this building, is, this room is wide. Just massive, magnificent, peaceful whales. God created them. And just think, within the entire world order, why would he create them other than to just show how big he is? What other purpose do they serve? They eat krill. <laughs> Certainly something else could eat krill, right? The, Created the great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. In verse 25, he does it again with the beasts of the field and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth. And God saw that it was good. We see that he is all powerful, and we see that all that he does. Is good. If I can pause there, brothers and sisters, bring your minds to Romans 8, and we know, I hope you know, and we know that all things work together for good to them who are called according to his purpose, and them that love God, and them who are called according to his purpose. And if you look at the context of Romans 8 28, all things, the context is pain and suffering and all things. And he works them all good. And then verse 26, the crowning moment of God's creation, all things that he does is perfect. And then God says in verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he 
them and God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. God made man in his own image, created us so that we would have dominion over the earth, delegated it to us to have dominion over the earth. Please don't be mistaken and think that God created us because he needed uh, interaction or he was perhaps lonely. For if that was the case, maybe if God created you simply because he wanted fellowship. Yes, he does want fellowship, but that is not the only reason he created us. If he wanted us for fellowship, it would have said in the beginning God was bored out of his mind and had nothing else better to do, so he just made man. That is not the reason that he made us. The chief end of man is to glorify God. And then chapter 2, I'll skip over it, but in chapter 2, he created woman also, Adam, the deep sleep, and God took of a rib. You say, why would God take of a rib? Don't ask that question. He used dirt for a man. So chapter 3, and in chapter 3, God's now got man and woman in the garden. Things are perfect, sinless, no sickness, no pain. In chapter 3 and verse 1, The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. We know that Satan will always twist God's words. He's so quick to do that. Now verse number 2. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She's mostly correct. I'm not quite sure where she got the second part. Perhaps that was Adam. God gave the command to Adam. Perhaps Adam added on. But I think this is going to bring us to the moment within the sermon. We've seen God in all of His magnificence and the goodness that He is. This lays down the thesis or the premise for this sermon, and it would be this idea. Submission to God always brings joy. Rebellion against God always brings pain. Submission to God always brings joy. And rebellion against God always brings pain. Let's see it happen in verse number 4. The serpent said unto the woman, You shall not. Surely die. For God has known that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So Eve is now reaching out to the fruit. Perhaps she's hungry. She sees that it's good to eat. She now desires to be like God and she's falling for the trap of Satan. Verse 6, And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit. Thereof and did eat and gave unto her husband with her and he did eat. I take it from that picture that he's standing there the whole time. And for the rest of scripture and for the rest of mankind's history, God holds Adam responsible for that moment where he takes of the fruit. In that moment, all of creation was shattered. In fact, Romans chapter 8 and verse 22 tells us that all of creation groans even until now. You see, God created all things good, and man stepped in in rebellion against God and brought pain. Now verse 7, the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, 
They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons, a very temporary solution to a permanent problem. Verse 8, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Stupid, stupid, stupid. They're hiding within the creation that was created by words. God walks into the garden and they're hiding behind the trees. If I could just take a moment and pause in the story and point out an image. I'm talking of roots of redemption. Here is Adam hiding behind the tree that will never cover him in his sin. God's going to call him out of it. And fast forward several thousand years and you'll see God place Jesus on a tree and tell us to hide behind it. Oh, how glorious is our God who would have the power to speak all things into existence and in that moment as Adam tries to hide behind the creation has every right to squash it at which point we would not even exist and instead he says, Adam, come on out. Let's see him do it in verse number 9. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And I don't think there's a single one of us in here that would say God didn't know where Adam was. Adam, where are you? And Adam is being drawn into a moment of repentance. Brothers and sisters, remember, rebellion against God always brings pain, but submission to God brings joy. Adam, where art thou? And God does this throughout the scriptures and he continues to do it to us today. Draw us to a point of repentance. Adam, where are you? I know where you are, but where are you? Confess, Adam, where are you? And he does it throughout the scriptures with others. You might remember Jacob, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob tricks his brother and then he tricks his dad and he goes in before dad and, hey, dad, I, I, I'm wanting the blessing. God, would you give, or dad, would you give me the blessing? And you remember Isaac, who are you? I'm Esau. <clears throat> I'm Esau. <clears throat> really, I am. I'm Esau. Well, come here and let me feel you. He must have been one smelly fellow with that goat skin just freshly pulled off of the goat on his arms as dad feels him. I don't understand this. I'm just wondering how bad Esau smelled if he's passing off as a hairy goat. And then fast forward in Jacob's life to the night that he's wrestling with the angel of the Lord and God keeps bringing him back to what is your name? I want the blessing. That's what he's fought for all his life. I want the blessing. And God says, what's your name? But I want the blessing. No, what's your name? God calls us to repentance and confession every time. He does it with the woman in Capernaum at Luke 8. Do you remember the... She's got an issue of blood for 12 years and she presses through the crowd and she comes up and touches the hem of his garment. Don't think that it was a magic coat. God heals those who he wants to heal. And Jesus knew all about the fact that this woman's trying to get to him and can't get through the crowd. And he did a no-look miracle and passed his glory through his mantle to that woman. And then he stops everybody where they're at and says, who touched me? Oh, brothers and sisters, draws her into the midst to a point of 
repentance and confession. Please don't think that you can just float through life. I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to follow the Lord. I'll show up when I'm supposed to show up. I'll read my Bible. He'll draw us back to points of confession and repentance. Rebellion will bring pain. But oh, how glorious is the thought that submission will bring joy. Adam, where art thou? Verse 10. And Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And in the next few words I see here in verse 11, I see comfort coming from God's mouth. Verse 11. And God said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? I see those as comforting words. It's essentially God saying, I made you that way. Who told you that naked was a bad thing? This is the way I created you. This is the way I made you to glorify myself. And somebody has come along and told you that naked is bad. Who told you that you were naked? What are you doing with those fig leaves, Adam? It's a temporary solution. You're going to need to be clothed with my righteousness. Verse 11, hast thou eaten of the tree? He's bringing him to repentance. Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eaten? Of course he's eaten. God knows it. Now verse 12, and Adam's going to pass the buck. Adam And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat it. Do you realize how fast he turned on Eve? We're a chapter away from and she is mine it's woman, woman. The word woman literally means she's of me. She's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. In other words, mine. Like you just think this through. God told him, name all the animals. That one's a dog. That's a bird. There's an elephant, the whale, and mine. Glorious honeymoon in the garden. And now, checked her under the bus. <laughs> and not only that, he turned the blame back on God. It's the woman that you gave me. In other words, if you hadn't given me this woman, I'd have been fine. But instead, you gave her to me. He passes the buck. Oh, how often we do this. Did I mention that submission to God brings joy, but rebellion against God will bring pain? Eve passes the buck as well. She does it in the next verse. Verse 13, the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Did you realize that as you move away from God, you will begin to seek fulfillment in other areas? People do this all the time. These would be the things that cause counseling sessions for pastors. People move towards self. Instead of moving towards God, they'll move towards self. And I see that played out on both ends of the spectrum as some will turn to the bottle to try to drown their sorrows, and I will become a better person in my own mind, and yet what they don't realize is that in the midst of that, they're making themselves a worse person. And on the other end of the extreme, I see those who will turn to education or physical exercise or name the thing. Do you realize that the end of all of those is still empty? Because one day your mind will fail or your body will give out. And self makes a terrible God. And some say, well, okay, I won't turn into myself. I'll turn into others. And then they begin to lift up others. So it might be a spouse, and I love my spouse, and I want to do everything I can to lift up my spouse. 
And then comes the day when my spouse cheats on me and crushes me. Or maybe I'm going to pour myself into my kids. I'm going to give my kids the best education and make sure they've got everything and more that I ever had. And I want them, and the day they bring home a failing grade, what is your problem, child? And place in that, we place on others something God never expected them to carry. You know, people make crummy gods. And some turn instead to stuff. I can just get enough stuff, it'll fulfill me. And sometimes that looks like going to Chermside or Australian Fair, or perhaps it looks like going to Amazon or whatever avenue so that I can get more stuff. And it just leaves us empty. And some would go to even religion. If I can just do enough things to please God. And all the while he says, come unto me. I've already provided the way out. Here's the Savior on the cross. Come and hide behind that tree. Don't try it your way. And so brothers and sisters, be careful about trying to find God somewhere other than where he is. So thankful that he's slow to anger. He gives out curses in verse number 14, 15. In verse 14, he places a curse on the, uh, on the serpent, and then he places a curse on the woman in childbirth in, in verse 16. And in verse 17, he gives a curse against man. He will sweat of, the, of his brow, and I would imagine that many of you did just that today, sweat of the brow and the work that it will take to bring forth fruit from the ground and yet, in the middle of all of those curses, he gives us verse 15. And in theology, we would call that the proto-evangelium, the first giving of the gospel. And so, can I just look at verse 15 with you, and I'll wrap it up. He says to the snake, but it's more than a snake. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Oh, there is so much hope in this. In the midst of curses as things are falling apart, and he's getting ready to drive them out of the garden, here comes a redemption, and he's going to give his own son. He's going to, he says in verse 15, I'm going to put enmity between you, snake, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And this is a glimpse going forward to the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus. And then he says, It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Jesus never got bit on the foot by a snake, but Satan sure thought that he had him at the cross. And in Satan thinking that he got the battle, instead God got the war, because all that he does is good. And there's Jesus on the cross, and at the cross he took every sin from Adam, taking a bite at the fruit, to the rapes and the murders, to the misappropriations, to the proud looks, disrespect to parents and unthankfulness, and he took every sin of mankind upon himself. Therein lies the roots of our redemption. They're found in the fact that he is an all-powerful, all-knowing, good God. And he's long-suffering. So, Father, we want to thank you for your grace upon us. Thank you that you sent Jesus and you did not leave us in our sins separated from you. I want to thank you that you are a great God. Thank you for the garden. Thank you that you continue to draw us back to a point of repentance where we confess our sin before you. 
And I want to thank you, Lord, that even in our rebellion, you sent Jesus to draw us back to yourself. Thank you that you continue to give us more opportunities to come back to you in submission, that you don't write us off when we fall. And so, Lord, we want to thank you for your greatness. We ask these things in your beautiful name. Amen.